in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And you have seen a living, vivid demonstration of that this morning. Ted and Christine are raising those children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And you guys were a blessing. Thank you for doing that so very much. And if any of you would like to interpret that last portion, you may have the gift of interpretation. You're willing to stand. You can do that. That was in Latin. And that way, that would be the only clear demonstration of tongues and an interpretation thereof in the church today. What a blessing. Thank you so very, very much. The incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, 1 through 18. We'll read it in a moment. But you've got a handout there. And uh, I want us to read the first two paragraphs together. It's the 1689 Baptist Confession, London Baptist Confession. It's called the Second London Baptist Confession because it is a second one. There's a first one in 1644, I believe it was, or 46 it was, 1646. And our church holds to this. This is what's been through the years holding to this particular doctrinal statement. And you can go onto the web and find it at uh, 1689.org, I believe, and some other places. Sometimes they've changed some of the wording to the, you know, taking out the uh, King James English to a more contemporary deal word or so, but it's not changed in its content. Doctrinal statements are very important if they're biblically based. This one's biblically sound, and a doctrinal statement really pulls together from all of the counsel of the Word of God what a group of people believe. And that's what these particular Baptists did in that particular day. And they had all kinds of other influences out there pulling and tearing away and distorting the Word of God. And this is what they did. They got this doctrinal statement, prepared it. Uh, and I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen, every one of us, every one of us need to be familiar with it. When we had the communion, I had a section from it then. And so we'll have this on the incarnation today. So you can read your handout. I'll read it aloud in paragraph 1, chapter 8. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of the church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did give from all eternity, give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Then in <coughs> chapter two, <coughs> paragraph 2, the Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, 
the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And those verses listed below each paragraph there are the verses that this statement was taken from. And I would encourage you to, in your own personal study to go through it, look at these verses and uh, check them out for your own personal study. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There's a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received them, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which are born not of blood, nor by the will of flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bear witness of him. <clears throat> I cried, saying, This is he of whom I spoke. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we love you. We love your word. We're grateful for those that have gone before us in the formulation under your direction of this doctrinal statement that we hold to and how it articulates so well the sound, solid faith in Christ Jesus the Lord. Thank you for these children this morning blessed our heart been raised in the nurture and admonition of your holy word what a blessing oh god oh to god the whole earth was doing that sort of thing with their children lord today as we come now to focus on your word for a few moments and turning the incarnation of our savior wear me like a garment master it's got to be all of you lord none of me because we all together, me included, ought to sit at your feet and listen to you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen and amen. 
Well, first of all, we'll think about the method of his coming. The method of his coming, which theologically, of course, is, as we've said, is the doctrine of incarnation, the method that he came. It's been somewhat humorously, uh, but nevertheless rather well said in a little poem, roses are reddish, violets are bluish, if it weren't for Christmas, we'd all be Jewish. And you know that's true, because there's no reason whatsoever, apart from the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no basis for Christianity. There's certainly no reason to celebrate this season of Christmas at all, apart from the incarnation. And so the only way that a person become right with God would become a Jew, a proselyte into the Jewish faith. But the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ changed all that. The Word was made flesh, verse 14, dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. Can you imagine the experience of those apostles? The glory is only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word is there is the Greek word logos. It's Jesus, the word. In Scripture, that's the title of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's given to Him. It's understood as God's ultimate communication of Himself. That's what the Logos is. Jesus, the Logos, the Word of God that was, was with God in the beginning and was God and became flesh is the ultimate communication of God the Father unto us of Himself. The word flesh is simply the Greek word sarx. And then was made is denomai. It's a Greek word that is, uh, it means to become. Denomai means to take place to become or enter into uh, a certain state or condition, okay? To enter into something. Note that the structure, though, if you look at the Greek in there and that word, what it means to become or to enter into a certain condition or situation, it assumes you're already in a particular situation first, right? I mean, you can't, uh, uh, it assumes a prior position you had. You can't become this, unless you were already something, right? Someone might say, well, well, I don't know about that. What about the creation? As one fellow said, God stood on nothing and spoke into existence everything that he is. Pretty much an accurate assessment of the creation record, certainly. But if you were a nothing before creation... You had nothing in and of yourself to make you yourself other than a nothing, right? So you're doomed to nothingness <laughs> apart from the power of the Lord God. God's omnipotent power is what it took to bring everything into existence. Omnipotent power, total power, all power, no power beyond that. Omnipotent power it took God's power in creation to speak things into existence. Take a look at uh, verses 13 and 14. But as many as received them, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which are born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That born not of blood, there the word born is geneo, okay? It means to beget. It's an aorist tense verb, 
passive tense verb at that. Something that took place in the past, and it was action received rather than action given. Okay? That's what passive is. If I hit you with a bat, you are the recipient of the action. You're passive in that, probably out because of it, but you're the recipient of the action. So it's action that took place in the past, and so the subject was acted upon. They were born not of the flesh, but of God. Those born of God then were acted upon by the power of God. That's how they were born of God. Not because they decided to believe or decided to walk an aisle or decided to fill out a card. They were acted on by the power of God. Now, some commentators have tried to take verse 13 and to make that apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. So well, verse, verse 13 is speaking of the virgin birth. Thus the which in that verse becomes the who. And that is a terrible distortion of the Greek. It is. It's wrong. Verse 13 is speaking of the elect of God. The elect of God. And the power of God via the Holy Spirit, God's power in the act of their regeneration. They were born of God. How? By the power of God via the Holy Spirit of God acting upon them. They were passive recipients in the regenerative act of the Lord Jesus Christ that delivered them from the dominion of darkness, out of spiritual death, doomed to hell. Because they were elect of God, they were regenerated and then enabled to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that same power, though, having said that. It's that same power that caused the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ in the virgin's womb. It's the Holy Spirit power of God. Nothing happens otherwise. In our lost estate, nothing would happen to that young woman then if it had not been for the power of God. Turn over to Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 26 through 35. We'll read that if you'd like. Luke chapter 1, 26 through 35. And in the sixth month, <clears throat> the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. You know what that means? This is an elect young virgin, a chosen vessel of the Lord. Hail, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give him <coughs> the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Spirit shall come upon thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. 
Therefore also that, shall, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. The conception, the conception of the Son of God in the Virgin Mary's womb was a work accomplished solely and singularly by the Holy Spirit of God. And you know what? So was your generation and mine. A work wholly, totally done by the sovereign power of God's Holy Spirit. That is a tremendous blessing, ladies and gentlemen. We'd be lost eternally so apart from the marvelous grace of our Father. So, the sovereign spirit of God regenerates each individual soul, delivers us from the power of darkness, from the dominion of the devil, quickens us to life, enables us to believe, giving us the faith to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to the saving of our souls. That's the method of the virgin birth, and it's the method of our regeneration. So what's the meaning of it? Well, incarnation, it uh, comes from two Latin words, in and carn. Carn is a, from a stem meaning flesh, in flesh. And the word incarnation is not in the scriptures, anywhere to be found. But the two words, in flesh, are, and you can look at, back to 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, we study, hereby we know Hereby, hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Of course, the Spirit of God can confess anything else other than that because that's the truth of God, that the Son of God came in the flesh. And then John 1.14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. Think about that. That's the apostolic Confession. Here are these men, just ordinary men, fishermen. The Word of God was made flesh. He dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Can you imagine the trauma? those men went through after following the Lord Jesus Christ, beholding his glory, seeing, touching, fellowshipping, seeing him brutalized and nailed to a tree. Can you imagine the trauma that they endured, not to speak of Mary, his mother, all willingly, purposely for the salvation of you and I? So, the incarnation. Here's a statement about it. It's the act whereby the eternal, pre-existing Son of God, without ceasing to be what He eternally had been, took into union with Himself what, before the act of incarnation, He did not possess, namely, a human nature. The eternal, pre-existing Son of God without ceasing to be what he had eternally been, took into union with himself what, before the act of incarnation, he did not possess, 
namely a human nature. And others describe the incarnation in these words, he who never began to be, eternally existed, and who continued to be what he eternally was, began to be what he eternally was not. That man made a good statement. The Council of Chalcedon, which is on the bottom of your backside of your page there, in 451, I've ne- of all the things I've read about this, I've never read a statement uh, more succinctly and beautifully stated than this one. Jesus Christ possessed two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinctiveness of the natures being by no means removed because of the union, but the properties of each nature being preserved. That's worth memorizing. It really is. Jesus entered the world through a virgin's womb, becoming flesh, taking upon his pre-existing self, humanity. He did not cease to be the word of God, but in the incarnation, he changed his method of being the word of God. He always was and always will be the word of God, but in the incarnation, he changed his method of being the word of God. And theologically, that's called the hypostatic union. Two natures without mixture, without confusion, etc. It's interesting in the scriptures to read those verses, and there's a lot of them, where Jesus, in speaking of himself, describes attributes that only he could have only if he were God. Only if he were God could this be true of him. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20, where two or three of you are gathered together in my name. There I am in the midst of them. Omnipresence. There I am in the midst of him, them. Here he is in the midst of us. Omnipresence. Matthew 28, 19, Great Commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age, the omnipresence of the Lord Jesus Christ, an attribute of God that he could not have apart from being God himself. He claimed omnipotence for himself. Going back up to 2818 of Matthew, Jesus came and spoke to them and said, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. (laughs) Omnipotence. Only God could have that. And Jesus was God. And because he was fully man, fully God, excuse me, in the incarnation, he didn't surrender anything. Okay? Jesus, when he walked the planet, was fully God and fully man. And he did not surrender one attribute at all of his Godhead, of his power, you know, as God. Yet he chose in his purpose of fully identifying with mankind to not use some of that at times, okay? He came with a purpose. His face was set like meant for that purpose. 
And so he chose not to utilize all of that he possessed as the word of God that was God. He came to be among us as the God-man. Then exercise all of them to fully identify with us. So with the twofold purpose, really, of his coming, one is the revelation of God to man, obviously. John 1, 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, though, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Jesus declared God to us. And that word declare is exegeto, and it's like from where we get our word exegesis, and that's when, you know, a teacher or a preacher goes to the scriptures, and then he uses a Greek or a Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever, and you look at each word, and you pull forth that meaning carefully and analytically and prayerfully, that's exegesis. You exegete the scripture. You pull out and to, to reveal the truth that's contained in those lines. That's what Christ did. He exposed, he revealed God to man. This testimony concerning himself, 14.9, Philip said, Lord, if you just show us the Father, it would be sufficient. <laughs> Jesus, this is, there's something humorous about this to me. I mean, Philip, all these guys have been with him 24-7. And finally, Philip says, Lord, just show us God. Show us the Father. And Jesus said, have I been so long with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? You, I've been so, you don't know me yet? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Philip, you're looking at him. Any more questions, Philip? <laughs> Glory to God. What an experience. And there's nothing said about Philip after this, but I'll bet you one thing, you can book it. This guy was different from there on out. <laughs> Whoa. Jesus is God. He came to reveal God to man. He also, in that process of revelation there, revealed to man that God cares for his children. He came for that purpose. Hebrews says, in time past, God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spoke unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. It's an incredible thing, isn't it? When we realize who Jesus is, and then he, it says up here, you know, he came, he was in the world, the world was made by him, and the world didn't know him. Then he, the next verse, and, and verse uh, 11, he came to his own. Who is that? The Jewish people. And they didn't receive him. And he made it all. Do you understand why? It has to be the power of God and the revelation of the Son of God. Apart from the revelation of God through His Holy Spirit, all is darkness. All is darkness. 
It's dark for every human being on the planet without the revelation of the Holy Spirit of God concerning the personhood of the Son of God. So now at this precise manner prophesied, just exactly like they said, he was coming, he came. 125 or so prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came precisely as it was said. He came personally to the world that he made. J.I. Packer, commentator, good guy, good writings. He summed this up really well. He said, God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. The most fabulous thing ever. Christ came through the virgin's womb. I think it was Charles Spurgeon, who most of the most illustrious preachers and speakers said, He upon whom the weight of the world's shoulders sat hung himself of a mother's rest in the pursuit of our souls. So when God wanted to show a sinful world himself, he came personally through the Lord Jesus Christ. Second purpose, of course, is to save his people. Nothing's more clearly documented in Scripture. I mean, when you find, why did he come? This is why he came. It's on page after page after page to save his people. First Timothy 1, 5. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Period. He came to save sinners. Paul wrote in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time was come, everything right on schedule, fullness of time. Someday along when the Lord leads, I want to maybe have an opportunity to, to go back to the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the moat around it, you know, all that stuff. It's in Daniel. And you can use the Jewish calendar, which has 360 days, so you can count forward and the number of seasons of days, and you'll come right up to Palm Sunday on the day. It's fascinating, the precision of the Word of God. When the fullness of time was come, not before, not late, but when it was right, He came, sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that He might receive the adoption of sons. That is so important to understand. There are people that say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit descended upon him at the baptism, left just before the crucifixion. That can't be so because he was born under the law because those under the law were condemned by the law and had no hope of glory. He had to be born under the law to fulfill his mission to save those under the law. The elect sinners that were under the law. You and I and the host before us and the host coming after us, I trust. 
chorus that a youth song our youth group used to sing in another church. He came to pay a debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. Boy, that's the gospel in a song right there. Paid a debt he didn't know because we did owe one that we couldn't pay. That's not all, though. There's a continuing incarnation. It goes on and on and on. 1 Timothy 2, 5. One God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, now standing before the Father interceding for us. The God-man, Christ the Lord, the incarnate one that was here, now there. Acts 7, 35, 55. It's a Stephen that is stoning. This has always interested me. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of God standing on the right hand of God. Well, that other verse said he was, you know, places he finished and sat down. But here he's standing. You know what I think? This is another one of those things I think. Not in error, okay. But I believe that Christ was seated at the hand of the Father, right hand of the Father. But when this is going on in Stephen's life, he's standing. Because this is an important thing. What does that mean? You and I are important to him. And who knows, maybe some of the horrific experiences you've gone through in life, painful times, and you, you've been sick and afraid you were going to die, or you buried a loved one that was killing you, to think about having to bury that person, who knows, but he was standing then. But I guarantee you one thing, whatever his position was there, he was caring then. Think about it. If he cared enough to come, he cared enough to endure what he endured, <laughs> it's a given. He cares now for you and I, day in and day out, season in and season out, ups and downs, good times, bad times, mountaintops and valleys. Jesus cares for us. The scripture says he ever lives to intercede for us. The God-man, Christ the Lord. His humanity that he has now it's not what he had when he was on earth. It's a perfected, glorified humanity. Still a God-man, perfected, glorified humanity. And you know what? That perfected, glorified humanity is the type you and I'll have when we're home with him. Scripture says, 1 John 3, 2, that we studied, now we're the sons of God. Beloved, loved of God ones, we are the sons of God, not yet appear what we should be, but we know that when we, he shall appear, we shall be like him. <laughs> we shall be like him, for we'll see him as he is. And he went on to say, every man that hath his hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Christ in us the hope of glory. That's the miracle of the incarnation. He came in person to reveal himself to mankind, God himself in Christ. 
to reveal his holy character by living a sinless life. He died in person to personally pay for your sin and my sin. He continues personally at the right hand of God. Personally at the right hand of God to intercede for you and I. Number one, because he loves us and he proved it on the tree. And secondly, because he knows we need intercession and a continuing interceder for each of us. So, there's an old backer, <laughs> Harley backer guy that I met along the way. He's now with Jesus. He'd been a rough customer before he was saved through the years and saved in latter part of life and got involved in ministry to the backers and those ministry, motorcycle ministry clubs and things. Big guy. Had this t-shirt instead on the back of it. If it ain't about Jesus, it ain't about nothing. That pretty much sums it up, ladies and gentlemen. If it ain't about Jesus, it ain't about nothing. And I'm talking about the Christmas season. If it ain't about Jesus, it ain't about nothing. Don't lose your focus. Don't lose your focus. And all this blur of activity and so forth. Because Christ Jesus is the reason that we celebrate this season. And one of these days, in the fullness of time, at that precise appointed time of the Father, He's going to return. And He's going to receive us unto Himself. Individually and personally, just like He saved us. That's it. The Lord of glory is going to come again and receive us. That's what he said in John. I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself, that where you are, individual Christian, I'm going to be there and you're going to be there with me as well. So, Merry Christmas. <laughs> in the name of Christ Jesus the Lord, Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, goodness, what a treasure, Lord, you've given us in this blessed book that we can go through it verse by verse. We can learn line upon line these precious truths. But even, Lord, beyond that, the, the Holy Spirit in us confirming and directing and reminding and teaching us and illuminating your holy counsel. Thank you, Father, for grace upon grace, as John said. Your grace just keeps coming, and we're grateful for every molecule of that grace upon our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would so fill us with your spirit and your truth that everywhere we are, in every encounter, in every relationship, in the marketplace, and Christmas shopping or whatever, in the workplace, in the gas stations or wherever, Lord, that we would reflect your glory and that in this sense there would be the incarnation through us and that they would see Jesus in us. God, wear us like garments for your glory. Thank you for the privilege, Master. 
In the name of Jesus, amen and amen.